the known universe with its heroes and marvels. But what of the darkness? In our modern world, this is where monsters dwell. Settle down, settle down. Everyone take a seat. The bell ringer is on the board. Go ahead and get settled in. Take out your laptops and we'll get started with today's lesson. Mr. Lawson, Mr. Lawson, Mr. Lawson. Yes, James. Can I go to the bathroom? Yes. Can I go to the bathroom when he comes back? (laughs) And then when he comes back, can I go again? (laughs) Oh, God. Uh, James, I have to stop this sketch right now. It's giving me like PTSD. I think it's giving all of us PTSD because right, Trey, right. we have an all-teacher episode of the Tomb of Ideas. <laughs> That's right, uh, and, and of course, if you're listening to Tomb of Ideas, I'm Trey Lawson, and I'm James Hickson, and we are joined today by a very special guest, author extraordinaire, <laughs> author of such books as Lazarus Gray, The Peregrine, Grave Digger. And of course, his latest book, The Straw Man, it's Barry Reese. Hey, I'm so excited to be here. I've been listening for ages and I've been wondering when I would get on the show. <laughs> I, I, I swear you were invited before this. You, yeah, it, it's, it's possible. <laughs> I, I, I feel it, it's one of those things where I think we've been working a while to try and figure out the scheduling of it. Yeah, yeah. If you guys don't remember, in our first episode, we actually thanked Barry for sending us the Marvel Horror Handbook way back in. Oh, Trey, almost 97 episodes ago now. Right. It's almost like we're approaching a milestone episode or something. I, it's it's possible. You know, I, I, I'm not a math teacher. I can't count. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think any of us are math teachers, actually. No. <laughs> <laughs> My students ask me for help with math. I'm like, I am the worst person possible to ask for help. You will yeah. fail that class. <laughs> I do the same thing when they ask me. It's like, I, you know, there is a reason I do not teach math. Yes. Yep. <laughs> yeah. You, 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 want, you want to know something about U.S. history and somewhat world history as a whole? I got you. I am down. Right. Like, I can go ad nauseum, as I have before. I think my Henry VIII rant is legendary at this point. But <laughs> I, I can barely add fractions, so... But one thing that I can talk about, and I think both of you can as well, is Marvel Comics. Yes. Yeah. Hello, listeners. You are reaching us near the tail end of our Inferno crossover. That's right. This is, I guess you could say, the penultimate episode of the, the event. That's right. And students, your homework for last from last time was X-Factor number 39, Damage Control number 4, Power Pack number 44 and Mutant Misadventures of Cloak and Dagger number 4. So if you'll please go ahead and clear your desk, we're going to have a quiz. First <laughs> Actually, question for you. Ye- go ahead. I was about to say, that's what it feels like when we do these summaries. <laughs> <laughs> 
first question is for you, Barry. So something our listeners who are new may not be aware of is that, like I said, you are a prolific writer, especially what's called New Pulp. What yeah. exactly is New Pulp? So it's it's kind of a, a literary movement that's designed to carry on the traditions of the classic pulp literature that existed in the 1930s and 40s. Things like The Shadow and Doc Savage and things like that. Tarzan. Lots of you know very famous authors got their started in the pulps. Their start in the pulps as well. And it got that name because of the the type of paper that it was printed on. It was very cheap pulpy paper. And most of those stories were very frenetically paced. They had a, you know, a focus on, you know, very fast moving plots, with a lot of adventure and the hero pulps, the ones that I really loved, kind of featured, featured a lot of kind of grandiose ideas, uh, a lot of things that really inspired the comic books that came slightly afterwards. And in fact, comic books probably helped kill the pulps because you know, now you had pictures, you know, that you could look at as well. So similar storytelling and people just kind of gravitated towards the ones that, you know, had the pictures as well. So New Pulp has actually existed ever since the classic pulps died off. But ever since I'd say the turn of the century, we've, oh man, that sounds so old, but since the turn <laughs> of the century, you know, I, I think that you've seen an increase in it because a lot of New Pulp publishers are very small. And so they're print-on-demand kind of publishers, you know, but you do have a few kind of big dogs in it, like Moonstone, who's also done a lot of comic book stuff. But yeah, it's just kind of picking up the pieces from, in some cases, public domain characters that have kind of, you know, fallen into disuse, like the Moon Man and things like that, to just creating new characters in the mold of the old ones. So I have kind of a shared, you know, universe of books. It's numbering about 25 books in it now. And, you know, I'm just trying to tell, you know, fast paced, fun, good versus evil stories. My tend to have a, a lot of supernatural stuff kind of thrown into it because I grew up on Scooby-Doo and I kind of <laughs> like that. We like but supernatural yeah, just, as well. Yeah. But yeah, it's just, just kind of, if, if you like movies like Indiana Jones or the Brendan Fraser mummy, that's as pulp as you can get. So yeah. now. I think a, a mutual friend of ours once, what sadly departed recent mutual friend of ours, Derek Ferguson, once waxed poetic about new pulp and digital. So mm -hmm. can you comment a little bit about how how digital publishing has ch changed new pulp? Because he, he, the way he put it, it's like it's almost perfectly built for digital uh, books. Yeah, you know, I think part of it, if I can recall what he was going after, is, is the original pulps were very cheaply and fastly produced. And with digital stuff, you can do the same kind of thing. I mean, you could do these Kindle novellas and things like that, that in some cases you can, you know, sell for 99 cents. You know, they're, they're cheap, meant to be easily digestible works of fiction. And it's, it's not particularly highbrow. And, you know, it's not meant to be. You know, I in my case, I, I had somebody once describe my stuff as beer and pretzels fiction. Oh, yeah. And, and I think that's a good way of describing it. Um, Derek, who I, I miss all the time, he was a great writer. Yeah. I used to say that he wrote the best sweaty man fiction that I had ever read. You know, <laughs> because, I mean, you, you could just see these brawny guys just listening with sweat as they moved through the jungles and stuff. And, and uh, you know, I think the digital makes it so easy 
to put these things out there and increases a lot of you know interactivity with the fans as well because people are able to to latch onto these series and new pulp fans are very passionate and are not afraid to tell me you know when they think that you've gone off the the deep end and what you should do in your next book so you know it's, it's a lot of fun yeah. Speaking of off the deep end, yes. Have have you have you read or are you familiar with the the shadow novel that James Patterson Entertainment put out? I own it. I haven't read it. Um, okay. I've I heard started so it. many scary things about it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I started it. <laughs> Can't tell you what happens <laughs> at the end. <laughs> it's weird. Yeah. And the shadow is like my second favorite classic folk hero of all time my favorite is the avenger yes um, yeah and i was i'm happy and proud to be able to say that i was able to write two avenger uh short stories for moonstone but uh, you know nick after after the avenger my next big dream would be to write the shadow and i i, I promise you i would do a better job than james patterson did yeah james well, patterson it, in quotation marks right he didn't even write yes. it like it's it's brian sits or whoever and patterson puts it right yeah. I'm willing to, to very well be James Patterson with Barry Reese. <laughs> <laughs> as long as it means the shadow is done right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, I, my attachment to Pulp has sort of goes back to Philip Jose Farmer okay. and his yeah. sort of re- revision of, of Pulp in yeah. you know, the 70s. The, the Doc Savage biography, his apocalyptic mm-hmm. life, sort of introduced so me good. to that character and led yeah. me to the original stories. Yeah, and I love A Feast Unknown. Have you yeah, read that one? Yeah. yeah. That one, I I own it, and I know it's for reputation, but I've not read it yet. Oh, I, I love it. There are some people who think it kind of goes a little too far in terms of, you know, its deconstruction of uh, Doc Savage and Tarzan, but right. like, to me, perfect. I loved it. Yeah, in, in fact, I've got a vintage paperback of it on my shelf right now. <laughs> so it's oh, it, nice. I should put it in my, my to-be-read pile. Yeah. So, bringing it back for those of our listeners who are not fans of New Pulp, although I highly recommend the genre to anyone. Yes. Uh, I mean, if you like the kinds of Marvel comics we're talking about, it's a hop, skip, and a jump to getting to some of the Pulp characters. Yes. Yeah. Like, anybody who really liked it when we used to talk about the Marvel magazines, yep. like, mm-hmm. yep. it is a very short jump to <clears throat> the Pulps. But... Or, the, or the wartime era... Ghost Rider story that we talked about that wasn't really a Ghost Rider story. Oh yeah, I, I love that story. I still love that story. But, I'm, but I'm that, it's a pulp story. Ha- it is. Yeah. I'm sad that Sean hated, it, but yes, I, it really was. But for for those of our listeners who were, you know, maybe more recently entertainment minded, somebody whose favorite film is a 1934 if, mystery if, film. If by recent, you mean spring of 1989? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Fine. Barry, we also have been doing a segment on our show that we've been calling Previously on X-Men. So if you could just tell us a little bit of your your history with the Merry Mutants. So the first, my history with comic books, first of all, I grew up on comic books. So, I mean, I could read before I ever went to kindergarten because I I just had comic books all around me. And so I don't remember a time in my life when they weren't a part of my existence. But I remember being a young tyke and having those Firestone collections that were put out in the 1970s, really some of the first, you know, graphic novel, I guess you would call them, collections of classic Marvel stuff. And I had, I believe it was Son of Origins of Marvel Comics. Yeah. And it reprinted 
Yeah, it reprinted X-Men number one in it. So I'm pretty certain the first X-Men story I ever read was X-Men number one. And because of that, I've always had a, a very special place in my heart for the original five. And the first X-Men comic I ever bought was Uncanny X-Men number 138. So it was the issue after the Phoenix Saga ended. And wow. it's the one where Scott is reminiscing about the history of the X-Men. And, you know, you might think that would be a terrible first issue, but actually I, I think it was perfect because it was Scott Summers recounting the entire history of the X-Men <laughs> in one issue with John Byrne artwork. And I loved it. And to this day, Scott Summers is my favorite mutant. A and bold um, statement. Yes. Well, I, you know, Cyclops was right. And, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and But I didn't really jump into the X-Men on a regular basis until John Romita Jr. came on. Because after I read 138, the next issue I picked up, Dave Cockrum had come on as the artist. And although I love Cockrum now, at the time I was, you know, very naive and, you know, un untrained in the ways of comic book artwork. And I was like, this is not John Byrne. I don't like it. And so I put it back and I came back when Ramada Jr. Ramada Jr. came on. I think it was like issue 176 because the first issue I picked up was the Madeline and Scott on their honeymoon fighting an octopus issue. And from, from there, I didn't miss an issue again until I think the Jim Lee days. You know, because I, I, I just kept through it. I love Claremont's writing to this day, even all of his little quirks. You know, all how many times can he say, you know, the best at what he does or, you know, all these things, you know, his obsession with Storm. But I, I, I just love all of his Claremontisms. I love his strong women and, you know, the soap opera. I always used to, you know, tell people when I was trying to get him into X-Men, I was like, you know, to me, who they fight is so totally unimportant. <laughs> What's important is, you know, who's sleeping with who, you know, who's... You know, all this stuff, that was the, the important stuff for me with the X-Men. That's the, and, As uh, a reader, I always look forward to the issues in between the fights where they're, yes. like, playing baseball or whatever. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's my X-Men story. So when, when the current stuff that we're talking about here, when Inferno was going on, I mean, I was, I was knee-deep knee deep in it. I was a hardcore X-reader. I was reading Uncanny. I was reading X-Factor. I was dipping in and out of New Mutants. I had mixed feelings about that always. Um, but I mean, I, I was pretty much in there. And of course, I was reading a lot of the other books that tied in, like Amazing Spider-Man and stuff. So I, I got a lot of Inferno off the stands at the time. And it, it still ranks to me as one of, if not maybe, the best X-Men crossover. I'm coming out taking bold stands here today, guys. I, I think and certainly I, in terms of influence and effect on yeah. continuity it's really yeah and i just think it's so impressive that it's so good when on the surface you would think it does not sound like an x-men story you know i mean the demons and all this kind of stuff i mean there's always some magic stuff in in the x universe but to go so far into it you know i'm, I'm it's just impressive that it worked so well yeah oh yeah and I, i've said several times over the course of us covering this event, I had never read all of it. I had read bits and pieces, mostly of tie-in issues. And right. when we when we first started it and came up with our, our reading order, my first reaction was, they got how many issues out of this? <laughs> yeah. But but it, it works. It, it's good. <laughs> it really is. All right, students, please close your booklets and place your pencils down. 
we're going to go ahead and take a quick break and we'll be right back with x factor number 39 right after these messages do you like spooky movies hair raising tales insightful criticism judgmental hot takes then you're gonna love car business the horror podcast on the cinepunks podcast network dedicated to all things weird and spooky my name is Leo Don. And I'm Justin Lore. And every episode, we're going to tear apart your favorite and not-so-favorite horror movies to get to the bottom of what makes these movies great, or maybe not great. <laughs> Whether it's The Beyond, Prince of Darkness, or Inseminoid, we dive in on a double feature every episode, and then we talk about it. Some of our insights are great, and sometimes we just complain. So if we have to suffer through it, so do you. Horror Business, available anywhere you find fine podcast products. ideas our first issue for today is x factor number 40 cover date is april 1989 writer is louis simonson pencils are by walt simonson inks by al milgram colors by greg wright letters by joe rosen the editors bob harris and mark so we continue from where uncanny x-men 243 explosively ended the x-mansion is in ruins mr sinister and Malice controlling Polaris are, are standing in the midst of the rubble. Most of the X-Men and X-Factor are lying defeated at their feet. Uh, Sinister has taken Jean Grey captive, and the only person standing is Longshot, who is having a crisis of self-confidence. He tries to stand up to Sinister, but Sinister calls his bluff. But it turns out this is all a distraction play, and Beast has been able to recover, and he throws himself at the villains. This, in turn, is also a distraction play, which gives Cyclops time to revive. Scott easily takes out Polaris. He tries to use his optic beams against Sinister, but Sinister stops him. Somehow, Sinister's able to block Scott Summers from using his powers. Rogue and Psylocke recover next. They attempt to engage with Sinister, but Sinister is too powerful for Betsy's mental attack, and he is able to overpower Rogue before she can absorb his powers. He psychically takes control of her instead. So now Sinister is in control of Rogue's body. During all of this, Cyclops has sort of a moment of clarity, recovering some lost memories, and he suddenly realizes that he had repressed all of these memories of Mr. Sinister experimenting on him as a, as a child. As Scott is having this, this realization, Havoc is... Polaris attacks Havoc, tricks him for a moment, lulls him into vulnerability because Havoc still has feelings for Polaris and keep, seems to keep forgetting that Malice is in control. And so Havoc ends up bound in some of the metal from the wrecking. Meanwhile, we get a whole lot of exposition from Sinister where he relays the story of how he has manipulated Cyclops since childhood, that he was in charge of the orphanage that Scott was sent to, that implanted false memories, that he 
he is the reason that Scott has mental blocks that prevent him from controlling his powers. And during all of this, Havoc continues to talk a big talk, but is unable to free himself from the trap that Polaris put him in. Sinister continues that also attempted to manipulate Jean Grey, that his end goal was always to get a child who was the genetic product of Jean Grey and Scott Summers. When Jean Grey appeared to die, that's why he created Madeline, so that he could still achieve that goal. This is all interrupted briefly by Colossus, who has regained consciousness and similarly fails at attacking the villains. Polaris is able to use her powers to hold in place. Sinister continues. But as he is monologuing at Scott, Psylocke is able to establish a psychic link among all of the members of X-Men and X-Factor, except for Cyclops and Jean. And mentally, they form a, a plan to try and save their captured teams. They realize that Sinister doesn't seem to be afraid of any of them, but he's deliberately preventing Scott from using his powers, and so that must be the key to defeat. And so Havoc says that if they can get him free, he can take care of Scott and Sinister. So the X-Men strategically pile on Sinister, they're distracting Sinister, they're sort of taking turns attacking, and Wolverine and Dazzler, I think, try to free Havoc. As they are doing so, Sabretooth reveals himself, having unburied himself from the rubble. Remember Sabretooth was in the last issue? I'd forgotten Sabretooth was in the last issue. <laughs> Sabretooth shows up, uh, is defeated off-panel by Wolverine. Um, <sighs> it's not an X-Men book. Okay, fine. If it was, if it was an X-Men book, then we'd get to see the fight. Um, Actually, but, I'm surprised. Like there isn't an X-Men. Like 244 of X-Men isn't just an issue-long duel between Wolverine and Sabretooth at this point. But we right, won't really get right. that until the 90s. Right. right. Um, at this point, they were still teasing us with that relationship. But anyway. Sabretooth's defeated off-panel, Havoc is freed, and Havoc begins very cruelly taunting his brother and using his powers on his brother. And if you remember, when the Summers brothers use their powers on each other, it ha it doesn't hurt them, but but they sort of charge each other up. So he's supercharging Scott with, with energy so that Scott is eventually so angry. And the turning point comes when Sinister actually attacks Jean. He strikes Jean, and it pushes, or he, is it he kisses Jean? He kisses her, I've yeah. lost the pain. He kisses her. He ki Sinister kisses Jean. That pushes Ew. Scott over, over the edge, and he releases one of the biggest optic blasts ever, and seems to incinerate Mr. Sinister. We, we, like, we see him reduced to skeleton. And then when the blast is gone, nothing remains. And that is obviously the last time we will ever see Mr. Sinister. He's gone forever. <laughs> Beast pulls Marvel Girl to safety and X-Men and X-Factor sort of make peace with each other because they've sort of been at odds up to this point in the crossover. The X-Men teleport away, saying that uh, I think Storm is the one who says that, that the X-Men and X-Factor are both in their own way fulfilling Xavier's dreams and Scott is left sort of reflecting on all of the things that have happened and is sort of reassured by the fact that at the very least they've managed to save his son. Who does not appear in this issue. Who is not in this issue at all. His son, sir, not in this issue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, hot 
diggity damn does Scott blow Sinister away in this comic. Yeah, right? I, I love that panel. That panel is it's powerful. Great. Yeah. I, I mean, I love the art in this issue. Like, I mean, it's hard to go wrong with Walt Simonson doing X-Factor. Yeah. Although yeah. I think that Milgram, I'm not sure, is the best inker for for Walt. Um, there's mm -hmm. a, there's a mm -hmm. few wonky poses around here. But uh, there's like, in particular, there was like one panel where I think it's Colossus is, mm -hmm. you know, he's got this, this bizarre little expression on his face as he's being yeah. pulled up into the air by Polaris and she's like making him smile. And uh, it's, it's just, I don't know, it's weird. It looks very odd. Yeah. It does. I do love Beefcake Havoc though. Yes. <laughs> there is a point in here where Havoc is just posing like, don't I look good in this? Like, but don't I look good in this? That's also I, when I when I first looked at the cover for this issue, which, which is a good cover. But I looked at the mm -hmm. cover. My first thought was, oh, half of the the combined team have ripped off all of their clothes in sympathy for Havoc because he lost all his <laughs> clothes in the previous issue. Yeah, it's it, so like. How convoluted is Scott's history at this point? Yeah. This is at least like the third retcon of his origin. Because we got the Roy Thomas origin as backups. Right. There were the backups in the original X-Men Volume 1. Yeah. Yeah. And it was Scott in an orphanage, but I don't think it's the same orphanage. I don't think so. And, and, uh. and I guess the, the implication is that some of that was implanted memories. Yeah. Just, and then later yeah. we get the later we get the revised version that adds sort of the the apparent death of the parents and and havoc is added to the mix and all that and so that's mm -hmm. sort of the the next major revision and now we're getting yeah. this that's sort of not undoing any of that but but definitely expanding it and twisting it a little bit and yeah. we haven't even gotten to third summer's brother yet <laughs> <laughs> yeah it would um, take I, a very long time for that. After the destruction of Sinister, I, I did feel like it, it it all kind of seems to wrap up a little fast. I guess for such a, a storyline that's felt so not not drawn out, but I mean, you know, definitely given its room to breathe, it felt like very quickly like, you know, hey, you guys are doing what you do. We do what we do. Bye. You know. Right. Um, They're literally having that conversation about both teams serving a purpose as they're teleporting away, like in that panel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, for the I guess longest... I would have I liked to have seen the teams, I don't know, hang out for a little bit, you know. Well, for the longest time, I used to think that Inferno happened and then the teams combined to make X-Men X Blue and X-Men Gold and the new and X-Force and, you know, the new X-Factor. And we're actually still a little bit away from that. Yeah. yeah. Like, I thought Inferno is where it all comes together, but no, it isn't. Even though that, that almost makes sense. Because really, X-Factor and X and the X-Men know about each other now, but for the rest of the world, the X-Men are still dead. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, we'll talk about with, with our Doom Patrol issue. Not Doom Patrol. Oh, God. What's it called? Uh, Damn it. Damage, damage Control. Damage Control. Damage control. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would love for there to be a Doom Patrol crossover in this <laughs> event. That would be crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not John Byrne, not John Byrne, not John Byrne. <laughs> but, like, it's it's a good wrap-up to Inferno. Right. And, and and like you say, the last two or three pages 
move very fast. It, it, it almost feels like some of those Silver Age issues where they get to the last couple pages and realize they've hit their page count mm -hmm. and suddenly have to tie up the rest of the story. Mm -hmm. Is it is it the last of our issues to have the Inferno banner? Oh, in certain uh, terms of the big one across the top? Yeah. I think so, because the rest of the ones this time... Well, I say that. Hold on. No, because damage, damage control yeah. and power pack both have it well but they and have the top corner they have the corner yeah. not the the craw the banner no no the oh the banner's gone this is the end of the banner but we still have some corner issues and it's right. kind of in the what if we're gonna talk about next issue i was gonna say there's a it's version a of it in the what if issue yeah but but yeah this might be the last because i think this is the last sort of x book like actual like x-men x-factor book in the in the crossover we're talking we have some other issues of x-factor coming up but they're really post-event wrap-up yeah yeah i loved it when mr sinister called cyclops sissy yeah the implication <laughs> there being that he was the childhood bully yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. or or that there never was a childhood bully and that was a memory that he had yeah or a way of cyclops's mind dealing with the fact that this demented geneticist asshole has been manipulating him his whole life and probably saying nasty things to him while he's strapped to a table. Mm. I mean, it's funny. This issue does two things that I'm normally not the biggest fan of, and that's issue-long fight scenes mm -hmm. and and extended expositional villain monologues. And yet, mm. by mixing the two, it makes both more interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, th there's... The, the, the thing that always amuses me about these is there is really no space whatsoever to be having all this dialogue. No, 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 no. In, in, in actual yeah. in actual combat, uh, Barry. That's you, that's the most you, clear Monty part of the issue. Yeah, you, you play D and D. Yes, a round is six seconds. Yeah, <laughs> you're you're not getting all this dialogue off in one round of combat. Yeah, and yet we do it all the time in D and D too. So. Right. Yeah. There's some there's some wild hair in this issue too. Oh man, oh, Polaris. Yeah. Polaris and and Longshot. Yeah. <laughs> to a lesser extent. What's that? I was just gonna say even some shots of Storm. I mean, her hair is going out of control. Yeah. Like it's not. It, it's also not the best that Sabretooth is. True. It's not not mm -hmm. my favorite rendering of Sabretooth. But it's also before he's sort of become what we think of as the iconic version of Sabretooth. Yeah. 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 Really, we get a, an over-the-shot shot of him, and then we get a distant shot of him, and then that's and then we have him on the ground. It, that, yep. The whole the whole fight lasts less 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 than a page, and we yeah. don't even see it. Yeah. There's literally like a close-up of not even he doesn't even get a snicked. He gets a snacked. <laughs> but I love the depiction of Cyclops' powers here. Yes. Yes. Especially yeah. when the powers are fizzling, like the the way the eyes are glowing and like the shapes are making, and then it just goes. There's not even a sound effect for it, but it just the, the explosive force of that last shot at Sinister. Yeah, yeah, I, th I think it's one of the most impressive Cyclops shots ever. I mean, talk about really showing off how powerful you know his eye beams are. Yeah. You know, modern modern artists would have the, the, the visor smoking afterwards, which yeah. makes absolutely no sense for how Cyclops powers work. Right. Right. Uh, no matter what Gail like, Simone tells us. 
Right. <laughs> now, you could have you could have something like residual plasma leaking from the corner, like do it sort of Kirby dot style. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But but it wouldn't be smoke. No. Sort of like but... how when when Havoc is charging him up, uh, there's sort of like residual energy just sort of coming out of his face. Yeah. It's a it's an interesting issue. The, I don't know. The art seems like it might be a little rushed. Sure. Yeah. And, and and Barry, like you said, probably not. The inker is not the most complimentary to Simonson's style. Yeah. Yeah. Because it almost it, feels like the the inks are pushing it more toward like a Ramita Junior style. Yeah. 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 I could see that. It's it's interesting. A little sketchier. All right. So that said, our next issue has a has a very different style of art. <laughs> yeah, uh, Barry, why don't you tell us about damage control number four? Yes, which does have a, a corner thing on the, the cover that says Inferno continues interminably. Oh. So, <laughs> kind of a reference to how long it's been going on there. This particular, yeah. particular issue uh, is written by Jane Dwayne McDuffie. Excuse me. Ernie Cologne is our penciler. Bob Wysick is the inker. Rick Parker is our letterer. John Wellington is the colorist, Sid Jacobson is the editor, and Tom DeFalco, of course, is our EIC. This particular issue starts off with the X-Mansion in ruins, but mechanical arms are digging through the wreckage, kind of doing something mysterious. Three days later, we see two of New York City's finest plainclothes officers discussing a rash of strange robberies. Someone has been stealing gravel, slag, and cement. The officers decide that they need to call in damage control, even though damage control is a very expensive prospect. And we find out in a couple of nice pages, those for those of you who are new to damage control, that they are an unusual engineering firm specializing in the repair of superhuman property damage, something that the Marvel Universe probably has a lot of need for. <laughs> so damage control account executive John Porter at a meeting points out that he has discovered a pattern the, of these stolen items leading all the way to 1407 Gray Malkin Lane, which of course is the X-Mansion. A team consisting of John Porter, traffic manager Robin Chapel, head foreman Lenny Ballinger, R&D expert Gene Strausser, college intern Bart Rosam, and comptroller Albert Cleary all go to investigate. You know it's going to be a good issue when one of the main characters is the comptroller. <laughs> While they're there... <laughs> Most of the team is kind of admiring the X-Mansion, talking about how beautiful it is, how great it is. John Porter, though, very confused. He's the only one who sees the mansion as it actually is, which is in ruins. So he tries to point this out to everyone else. Everyone else thinks John is going nuts. And then they all spot more mechanical arms working to move things around on the mansion. This seems to prompt something in Robin's memory, and she remembers that she and some of the others have been here before. They then go into a flashback and recounts an old job at the mansion. In flashback, we see Robin and Albert with Professor X, who says that Reed Richards has recommended damage control and is very impressed with them. Robin tries to sell Professor X on coming up with a contract deal with them that'll save them money, but Professor X turns them down because he says that he's afraid that a paper trail will lead someone to putting together that the X-Men is related to the school. He does go on to admit, though, 
that there has been a lot of extra damage done to the school lately ever since the children have moved in, referencing the new mutants. We then see Kitty Pride and Doug Ramsey in the danger room. They're feeding comedy tapes into the Shire technology computers. Yes. Doug asks a wonderful question. Kitty, why are we putting the comedy tapes into the computer? And Kitty then explains that the danger room is for them to practice their powers in dangerous situations. Not really answering the question of why they're putting in old sitcoms and so forth into the computer, but maybe she expects, you know, this could come up. Right around that time, Jean wanders in, takes one look at the Shire technology, and starts mucking with the system. Meanwhile, Lenny is downstairs, turning down Logan's offer of a beer. He then wanders into a room expecting to find a bathroom, but instead he is now in the danger part of the danger room. Wolverine rushes in to try and save him, but is confronted by Silly String and no less than Groucho Marx. What happens after this is Wolverine is thoroughly embarrassed, takes a pie to the face. The rest of the X-Men are then called in. This is the X-Men of some time in the past. So we have Rogue in her original outfit. We have Storm in her punk days. And, you know, the, the whole team rushes in there. And I think we have Kitty in what I believe is her, is it her aerial identity? Based on the costume here. I think it's pre-Shadow like Cat. Yeah, yeah, I think this is Shadow Cat. And then there's this bizarre battle in the danger room where robotic clowns show up. Groucho Marx attempts to flirt with Storm. There's this really interesting panel of Cyclops doing what looks kind of like a pirouette in the air as he's, you know, blasting things. And then the three Stooges appear and they are then defeated. It turns out that they're robots. So I don't know how old you guys are, but I was reminded of the old Robotic Stooges cartoon. Wow. Yes. And with the clowns who show up, I was disappointed that, that, that one of them was not Obnoxio. Obnoxio the Clown, who actually starred in an Obnoxio versus the X-Men one-shot, where he, in the immortal classic cover, holds a yellow and black costumed Kitty Pride and says, you know, what's yellow and black and dead all over? Kitty Pride. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. So eventually, the X-Men managed to shut down the danger room, they get things repaired, and then Professor X does the most Professor X thing imaginable, which is mind-wiping all of the damage control people so that they don't remember anything about the damage, they don't remember the X-Men, any of that stuff. And so it's these lingering effects that are causing them to not see the mansion the way it actually is in the present day. They figure out that it's the robotic arms who've been committing the thefts, that some part of the Shire technology is attempting to rebuild the danger room and the mansion. And they decide to return all of the stolen material to those who had it taken from. And that is our issue. Yeah. First I, off. Yeah. I was going to say, the first thing that I noticed is Ernie Cologne is an artist that I'm familiar with, but I've never seen him in, do such a mad magazine kind of style artwork um there were definitely pages and panels here that felt like it could have been right out of a mad magazine you know satire of the x-men oh yeah 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 it's all very sort of looney tunes with yeah. the caricatures and, and things like that and this was the first issue of damage control i've ever read so yeah so the, it, just to give people a little bit of a history damage control debuted in an issue of i think marvel age Mm -hmm. um, as part of an 
one of the anthology books co-created by Dwayne McDuffie, who writes this issue. It's some of the earliest comics work that Dwayne McDuffie did. And it is so weird to me that issue four of what was a four-issue series was an Inferno tie-in. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I will say that Dwayne McDuffie and the artists here have a perfect, perfect handle on Charles Xavier. Yeah. Yes. And especially like, that era of Charles Xavier. You're like, oh, yeah, the, he's exactly that creepy. Good job conveying that. <laughs> yeah. Like, yes. It's, it's something that I think, like, later comics took a while to catch up to. The fact that, no, Charles Xavier is a skeevy dude. Yes. Except when in X-Men Hidden Years, John Byrne would land on it by accident. <laughs> Don't make me think about John. Don't don't think, don't make me think about Charles Xavier flirting. <laughs> oh, you know no, I, I had a lot of fun with this issue. Yeah, I did too. It made me think. You know, maybe I'm going to check out some of the others. You know, since we just was just talking about how impressively Cyclops was portrayed in you know the last issue of X Factor on page 11 of this one, on there's a close up of Cyclops opening the visor and blasting and i'm not sure that i've ever seen it portrayed quite like that i mean usually you just see you know the big beam of force coming right. out of his eyes and out of the visor but here and, you can actually the, see the the visor rising you see his eyes and, and, and you either see the hand on the side like twisting a knob yeah. but no effect of twisting the knob right or he'd have the thing in his palm that he would press mm-hmm but yeah, this was just a really interesting panel. I thought it was it was interesting. I, I was I looking loved, at the exact same one. Really? I love the 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 way that Nightcrawler 2 reacts to Wolverine when he's like, you know, what's on your face? Is that a pie? You know, and Logan threatening <laughs> to, to kill him, you know, if he laughs. So. And and then the callback later of Logan asking Professor Xavier, can you make them forget about the pie? And Xavier's like, I don't think I could if I wanted to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you mentioned Cyclops here. It reminded me of a line from the previous issue I don't think we talked about, where Archangel is confronting Mr. Sinister, and he was says... Was saying he was the best of us and all that? The most yeah. moral and upright of men. And I'm like, this is a shock to current readers of, <laughs> of well, X-Men comics. But the point yeah. that he's making is that the things that deviated from that... The, the abandon first the abandonment of the team and then the abandonment of Madeline were all Sinister's manipulations. That 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 those were not decisions that Scott made entirely on his own. Yeah. It it really makes you realize just how much Sinister fucked up Scott Summers' life. Yeah. Yeah. But that continues to be sort of central to Scott Summers' story for decades after. First first Mr. Sinister and then Charles Xavier. Yeah. Well, man... even here, Scott Scott's in the going back to the X Factor issue, but he says that that all the things that he thought was Xavier's fault are really Sinister's fault. Right. Yeah. But I, I like I like the sort of flashback version of Scott in in the damage control issue. Like you mentioned in the yeah. summary, the the panel where he's like like targeting the pies as they're flying yeah. at him. It's great. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I thought it was really fun. And I, I loved, I, I did actually laugh out loud. I don't know why, but there's the, the scene where Rogue is being confronted by one of the clowns and he holds up this like funny gun and out pops out the little flag. And only instead of saying, you know, 
bam or whatever it says pierce and she's thinking you know why does it say pierce and just, that's when it fires you know something through her shoulder you know so it's it, it i don't know why i thought it was funny because it's kind of horrific the next panel she's bleeding on the floor but it, it struck me as very very humorous well it, it it's it's late bronze age joker yeah it is yeah. speaking of humorous I, I i know i shouldn't but i really appreciate Groucho marx in this issue yeah oh, he's fun <laughs> say to say yeah. and win a prize yeah well and it's it, the way that he's sort of wavering between sort of vintage groucho from like the marx brothers days and you bet your life groucho because he's kind of a little bit of both <laughs> yeah and he's a bit of bugs bunny who of course is also based on groucho so right right yeah <laughs> It is, I I just appreciate Groucho. There's a great documentary, if you ever get a chance to watch it. It's about Groucho Marx's appearance on the Dick Cavett show. Okay. It's it's really good. It's American Masters, Groucho and Cavett. Okay. But it's it's a really great documentary. Kind of looking at, at Groucho's later years, very entertaining and... You also get Dick Cavett, who's probably one of the best interviewers of one of the best late night interviewers ever, really, in my, in my opinion. <laughs> well, and Cavett, yeah, I mean, there's something about Cavett that always I find so soothing, so relaxing. <laughs> you know, the way he talks, his whole demeanor, everything. Yeah. It, it, by the way, if we, if we hadn't driven away our younger listeners <laughs> <laughs> already, guys, Rhapsodizing about Dick Cavett and Groucho Marx might do it. I'm also, I just, anytime Groucho Marx comes up, for some reason I always think of a story which might or might not be apocryphal, but but apparently at some point in the late 50s, he traveled to Germany with his wife at the time. On, I guess they were out seeing the sights and someone pointed out the location of Hitler's bunker where Hitler died. And so he stopped and performed a two-minute Charleston. <laughs> <laughs> See, I thought it would be the other famous Groucho story you were about to tell. Oh. But of course, the one where the woman's like, you know, uh, on the woman's on I Bet Your Life, and she's like, so tell us about yourself. And she's like, well, I have, I think it's like, what, 20 kids? And and, she, and she's like, oh, 20 kids? How'd that happen? I was like, well, I really love my husband. And he says, well, I love my cigars, but I take out my mouth now, now and then. Uh. <laughs> there's there's also the story of Marx going with Elton John to see a performance of Jesus Christ Superstar. So that image alone is enough, right? <laughs> yes! <laughs> but then, as the lights go down, Groucho shouts out, does it have a happy ending? <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's um, good. You know, around the time that this whole Inferno thing was going on, this was before Dave Sim, you know, completely went off the deep edge. But I was a big Cerberus fan at the time. And, you know, he had Groucho oh, yeah. Marx as a regular character in there, Lord Julius. And, you know, so, I mean, it was just spot on. He was just Groucho, you know. So I always developed a, a big affection for him from Cerberus. Yeah, I, I guess when I was a kid on EBS, some channel would show reruns of bet your life and mm-hmm. so even though i'd never seen any of the marx brothers movies i had watched these old game shows that Groucho hosted yeah. and then just sort of fell in love with his persona and of course you know i loved mash and hawkeye was always doing his Groucho yep. impersonation 
Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. I think, but it was for me, it was between those old reruns and, like you're saying, sort of the pop culture assimilation of his persona between mm-hmm. Mash and stuff like Bugs Bunny and, and things like yeah. that. Yeah. Although speaking of Cerberus, there's a character in Inferno called Sim, which is a direct yes. lift of Cerberus. And yep. speaking of Inferno, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Power Pack number 44 right after these messages. Andy, I have an amazing idea. Let's do a podcast. We've been talking about doing this for years. That sounds great. So what should we talk about? Something no one else is talking about. Batman. <sighs> Mike, there are hundreds of Batman shows out there. You used to do one. True. Well, maybe we could do an index show. Are you insane? We both already host those. True again. Okay, maybe we could talk about Batman stories no one else does. Like the Jerry Conway run. Ooh, ooh, yeah. Yeah, we could discuss his entire run and then go into the Doug Mensch run. But we won't be tied down to that. We need to be free to talk about other Batman stories from that era as well. And we could call it The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. Great! Uh, I guess we should do a trailer. I think we kind of just did. Yeah, but it's missing something. Like, you should have added music behind us or something. Andy, I have an amazing idea. Let's do a podcast. We've been talking about doing this for years. That sounds great! So, what should we talk about? Something no one else is talking about. Batman. (sighs) Mike... There are hundreds of Batman shows out there. You used to do one. True. Well, maybe we could do an index show. Are you insane? We both already host those. True again. Okay, maybe we could talk about Batman stories no one else does. Like the Jerry Conway run. Ooh, ooh, yeah. Yeah, we could discuss his entire run and then go into the Doug Mensch run. But we won't be tied down to that. We need to be free to talk about other Batman stories from that era as well. And we could call it The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. Great! The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. New episodes drop on the 14th and 28th of every month. The show and the website, www.overlookeddarknight.com, launch in May of 2017. From the Fortress of Bailitude Podcasting Network. You're a very uncommon girl. Do you know what mutants are? We can help you get better. You're in a safe place now. I saw something. I don't think she wanted me to see. I don't think we're here to get better. This isn't a hospital. It's a cage. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas. Our third issue is Power Pack number 44. Cover date on this is March 1989. The writer is uh, John Donov. Pencils by John Bogdanov and June Brigman. Inks by Russ Heath and Hilary Barda. Colors by Glynis Oliver. Letters by Joe Rosen. Editors Carl Potts and Mark McLaurin. Which is not the credits in the book. That's weird because I was going off of the, the Marvel wiki there. 
Yeah, not at all what the credits of the book are. So let me do that again. That's what I get for trusting the wiki. See, students, this is why we tell you don't trust the wiki. The wiki (laughs) is unstable and anyone can edit them. (laughs) The wiki is a great Um, starting point for your research, but it's important to also get independent verification of anything you read there. Right. So Power Pack number 44, cover date March 1989, special guest scripts, Juliana Jones, special guest pencils, June Brigman, special guest inker, Hilary Barta, letters by Joe Rosen, colors by Glennis Oliver, edits by Carl Potts, and Tom DeFalco is the same old editor in chief. And I guess everybody was busy on other Inferno books at this point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And so we open with sort of the wrap up of Power Pack's corner of the Inferno storyline, continuing from their last issue. So if you remember, their parents had found out their secret identity over the course of their battle with the Boogeyman. And so now Power Pack are out in the city trying to save as many people as possible from the demons because we are still in the midst of Inferno. And the kids are exhausted. They are worn down from a whole night of nonstop action. And just when all hope seems to be lost, they're exhausted and surrounded and the demons are closing in. Suddenly, in a totally different book, the mutants are successful in defeating Nastir and all of the demons are sucked away to limbo, almost. The kids return home where their parents are acting very strange, pretending to be normal. They are clearly both having nervous breakdowns over the idea that their kids are superheroes and have kept it secret for so long. And as soon as the kids walk away, all of the stress and despair just manifests on their faces. Um, The next morning, the kids try to get their parents to sort of engage with the reality of the situation, but but they are just unwilling or unable to do so. And so the kids go out to try and do more good, to to save more people. And they find the remnants of Inferno, places where inanimate objects had been transformed into demons and had partially reverted back, but people were still trapped inside. Or, so, so for example, the first one they find is a guy trapped by his own car, which had turned into a demon. And when they try to, when the Power Pack kids try to use their powers to release him from the car, their powers somehow reactivate the demonic energy and and it attacks again and they have to fight it off. The same thing happens with a bus that had tried to eat a a bunch of of passengers. And so they have to try and and free the people without totally reactivating the bus. They accidentally reactivate the demonic energy of the bus. And so then very quickly, they have to get everyone out before it digests them. The kids eventually arrive at a hospital that is overcrowded and understaffed and still dealing with the trauma of the previous night. And the kids are trying to help when suddenly several members of the New Mutants show up. And of course, from previous issues, Power Pack and the New Mutants know each other. So this is a little bit of a reunion. They were involved in the first fight with the Boogeyman before he became a supernatural being. And so the New Mutants use their powers to help the hospital starting with Mirage, who uses her abilities to conjure a team of medical professionals and a team of construction workers to both repair the place and help the doctor see patients. We then get sort of a montage of 
the repair work and of power power pack kids using their powers to help patients. And after hours of this, both the new mutants and the kids are exhausted. Luckily, the U.S. Army shows up with government issue food, water, clothing, and blankets. And the Corps of Engineers are flying in soon after. So the kids go home, or the kids and the new mutants leave job well done. The kids explain to the new mutants about their family situation where the their secret identities have been outed and because of it their relationships to their parents seems to have been irrevocably broken and then they go home and the new mutants wish they could do something to help the new mutants get home and nope, power their pack. parents oh sorry power pack gets home and their parents are behaving very strangely their mom their is cowering and had a complete nervous break their parents have had yes. a complete nervous breakdown Yes, yeah. like like they are they are just gone, mentally gone. And just when all hope seems to be lost, the new mutants show up and concoct a wild story about replacing yeah. the kids with mirage doubles so that they could pretend to be mutants to lure out the boogeyman so that the new mutants could defeat the boogeyman as part of their attempt to stop Inferno. And... As part of this, Mirage brings in the quote-unquote real kids, who are, of course, illusions, and the the Mirage children and, and the Power Pack's parents all sort of fall asleep together on the bed, and after they're asleep, Mirage allows the fake children to disappear, Power Pack join their parents on the bed, and they're all put to sleep to finally get some rest after all of the difficulties they've been through during Inferno. And so we end essentially undoing the huge change in their status quo that had been done over the last several issues. Yeah, I, I have to say, this one left me feeling weird. You think? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I mean, know Power Pack, Power Pack has their fans, but every yeah. issue of this original volume that I've read leaves me feeling weird. Yeah, because, I mean, I mean, on one hand, I understand, I mean, their parents were, I mean, yeah, they were mentally broken here i mean some of the the panels the depictions of them is like really sad and creepy the, but the, at the same the, time the page where the page where they come back home the second time and the mom's cowering in the corner there's a close-up of the dad's face in profile where he has yeah. the most dead-eyed stare like yeah. it's haunting yeah but i mean talk about you know the the most incredible you know <laughs> ghost lighting ever i mean at the end here i mean i i don't know i don't know how i feel about it <laughs> i mean it's it's not too far removed from xavier wiping everyone's memory yes i know and that always bugs me too <laughs> like barry as a parent you, you like like myself you are a parent you have a child yeah uh, how pissed off would you be at the new mutants here yes <laughs> Because the, yes. the moral the moral of the story seems to be sometimes it's just better not to know. Yeah. <laughs> Lie to your parents, kids. Yeah. Yep. Save them from themselves. It's like it is the most cop out of endings yes. I have ever seen. And just like convoluted, like superheroes come in and save the day. And like Yeah. I, uh, the hell is mm. happening here? But you're not wrong. Like, the parents are completely broken here. Right, yeah. right. Like, given that that's where they took it, I don't know how else you fix it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, no. It, 
just like, and I wonder if that's an effect of having a guest scripter here because possibly the, the parents seem much more adjusted to it in the previous issue. In the previous issue, yeah, they're also they in the previous issue very much in shock, like like yeah. literal shock, like medical shock from like being abducted by the boogeyman. I would love to know why there is you know this a whole guest creative team here because it seems odd for I mean it's such seemingly such an important event for these characters in this series and to be done by you know a guest writer guest artist and you know it's I don't know it's odd um, yeah and again it's Bogdanov was on other books at the time too I just wonder if something had to give yeah Speaking of guest pencilers, despite the guest penciler, Gossamer continues to be inappropriate for all age comics. Um, right, right. Just, just, just points where she's just like she, she's looking at the audience, looking at directly at us, and just posing for us. Yep. And I'm just like, uh, there's uh, also, there's also the bit where she is making all of the the patients forget their pain, and and we're even yeah. told the effect is most pronounced on male subjects. Yeah, there's a good. It's a good thing that Gossamer is standing where she is in that panel, because otherwise we would just see all their erections. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> the expressions on the faces of the patients is very funny. In that yes. Panel. Yes. In that same scene, there is a very nice panel where the doctor says, aren't you children too young to be superheroes? And, of course, the first thing that comes to my mind, Barry, it might be the same for you since you had a kid in the house around the same time. Yeah is Phineas and Ferb. <laughs> oh, yes. Aren't yes. you a little young to be superheroes? Yes. <laughs> yes, we are. Yes. <laughs> and it, it seems like that's actually what he's about to say when suddenly the new mutants show up. <laughs> yes. Yet another instance, it, it, not the only instance we'll see in this episode, of the new mutants popping out of nowhere, saving right. the day. Yeah. Deus Ex that, New Mutants. Yeah. Appearing on what looks like Warlock turned into a goblin glider. That is, yep, basically. It's just, uh, also, do Danny Moonstone, is it Moonstar or Moonstone? Moonstar. Moonstar, thank Star. you. Because Moonstone is the, the Thunderbolts film. Publisher. Right. Well, yeah, that too. Go go out and go out and buy some Moonstone books written by... Right, you're just subliminally, like, yeah. basing that yeah. through the episode. <laughs> uh, <sighs> do, do, do these powers work like this? Like, there is a point where she creates an army of doctors and... And construction workers. Yes. Yeah, it, at least initially I thought she could only pull, like, people's fears out of them. Right. Maybe that changed at some point. In oh, Inferno. No. It changed in Inferno. Was it? Yeah. It changed where she could pull anything that she desired out. Or it, okay. it was in the, in part of the lead-up to Inferno, because I definitely read that issue. Where right. she could pull and desires the, too. The trick was that it had to be based on something from the mind she was pulling it out of. Like it, yeah, it would be their mental image. Of. But there's um, just no way that they could act this independently. And also, just yeah. add, just continuity note for the issues we're talking about. Technically, this appearance of New Mutants of the New Mutants in Power Pack takes place after the next issue we're going to talk about. Yep. Yep. Which is also a little bit confusing, but sure. Yeah random thought that just occurred to me when I was reading this issue the first time is yes. that Danny's New Mutants outfit at this point in time looks sort of like a female version of 90s Nightwing. Yeah, <laughs> alright. Yeah, I never thought of that, but... Yeah. I, I maintain that I like that 90s Nightwing outfit. Oh, I Lighter love it. wings and all. 
Yeah, yep. yeah I like and it too. Ponytail too. Yeah. Although my favorite Nightwing costume is Disco Nightwing with the the collar. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We we stand the Disco Nightwing here. Yes. <laughs> you like except for the cop out at the end, it was a good issue. Yeah, it's fun. It's yeah, it, it does fun. what it does what you'd expect a tie-in issue this late in the event to do, which is acknowledge what this group of characters is up to as the event is ending and then sort of tie up their loose ends. It just tied up their loose ends in the weirdest way possible. Yeah. yeah. And and so far, n- no issue of this crossover, and I'll give it credit for this, has felt wasted. No. It, it doesn't either, feel... It either feels like it is doing something in service of that ongoing story, or it is linking that ongoing story inextricably into the main Inferno event. One of the two. And, you know, that's a different from, I think, crossovers we see nowadays where we would have a separate miniseries for New Mutants Inferno right, and yeah. Spider-Man Inferno Exterminators Inferno Alpha and Omega yeah yeah and that doesn't happen here it, it feels except for that cop at the end it all feels earned it all feels yeah. like it meshes well yeah that, that's what it was up for even like say you know that spectacular issue we talked about last time where it's it's just looking at the effects of this huge crossover on two members of Spider-Man supporting cast yep, that yeah. worked well and and again i know james you're not a fan of that era of daredevil but the daredevil issues do a really good job of situating what's going on in daredevil's continuity at that moment with the i with the fact that new york is literally on fire yeah, that's exactly. the Nocenti Romito run. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, see, I, that's one of my favorite Daredevil runs all time. Me too. I love it. <laughs> yeah. It's all just to say that, like, everything seems earned. Everything seems organic. Everything seems like it belongs, and it's not just here to be a tie-in issue. Buy this issue! Right. And yeah. then there's the Mutant Mysteries of Cloak and Dagger number four. Here we go. <laughs> that's That's a transition right there. Again, Mutant Misadventures of Cloak and Dagger, number four. Let's just take a minute to talk about that title. Yeah. This is the point where they decided that Cloak and Dagger had to be mutants in order for people to give a shit about them. Well, because... This is the point at which I jumped off the Cloak and Dagger machine. I, I was a big fan of the early stuff, the Bill Mantlo and Rick Leonardi stuff. I bought the limited series. I was buying their appearances in Spider-Man. I, I was really high on them, and then... You know, once they became mutants, I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm done. I'm out. <laughs> Are they still mutants? <laughs> I don't no. think so. That was undone. Yeah. They're, yeah. I mean, for all I know, they're inhumans at this point, you know? Yeah. Wow. I, wow. I, I'm joking, but. They were Dark X-Men. They, they were, were Dark, Dark X-Men, X-Men for a while. I remember yeah. that. I think they're Dark X-Men again as part uh, of of Madeline's team, maybe. Right, right. That, Ma- sure. Madeline and Havoc's team because, guys... Nothing we stop we talk about here stops at Inferno. Uh, <laughs> and please, please see our upcoming coverage of Dark Web whenever that happens. Right, which we, uh, we will do someday. Absolutely. Exactly. As soon as you, our lovely listeners, sense the prerequisite bottles of booze for that. <laughs> but yeah, writer on this one is Terry Austin. Pencils are Mike Vosberg. Inks are by Terry Austin. You don't often see a writer inker combo on a book that is yeah. surprising well and as a writer terry Austin's one of the greatest inkers of all time 
I, I don't think I can argue with that. <laughs> no, no, that's that's solid. Letters are by Ken's Rusnak. Rusnak. Colors are by Glenn Oliver. Carl Potts on edit, and Tom DeFalco is trouble. Apparently, <laughs> we pick up again with Crotus. That's right, that little blue guy from the Excalibur issues we like so much. At it again, using the book he stole from Blasco to do some more computer sorcery. And man, it is so much fun just like watching this this fascination with 80s computers in these comics. Like, computers are the new magic, Trey. Mm-hmm. I, right. I, I, I believe it to be true. And we would see this even like saying like Young Justice. There is a scene in early issues of Young Justice in the 90s where a cult runs a basically a, a ritual through a computer because, hey, it's the 90s. Well, I remember uh, Tim Drake hacking into Rachel Ghoul's systems using a Windows 95 machine, so. <laughs> and of course, this all goes back to perhaps the greatest of Clint Howard's film outings, Evil Speak. Oh, um, Evil Speak. <laughs> where he is a nerd who runs a, is, he runs a spell through a computer, right? I'm not wrong there. I, I, it's something like that, yeah. Yeah. So it is technology that. based. Although so, having having had my share of AI generated essays submitted recent mm-hmm. times, I very much sympathized with, with Crotus as he stabbed a dagger into the computer and shouted death <laughs> to technology. Students, this would be a good time to talk about our plagiarism policy on the course. <laughs> Academic integrity is important. So Crotus decides that, you know, he's gonna reopen the, the portal to limbo. And the way to do that is, of course, through cloak and dagger. Yeah, sure, okay. We then go to the apartment of dagger, Terry, and Tandy? Tandy, there we go, Tandy. Tandy. You can tell I don't read cloak and dagger, guys, I'm sorry. (laughs) Where she is revealed to be blind. Apparently she became blind in issue one of this series. And she's kind of stumbling her way through her father's apartment when she is confronted by Cloak. But it's not actually Cloak, it's a demon. Dun, dun, dun! We didn't cut away to space, because of course we do, where the actual Cloak is floating around in a bubble. Apparently Hal Jordan just left him there. Uh, (laughs) He is then approached by some demons who, just before who decided he'd be a good little person to play with at this point, and also apparently part of Crotus' fan. We didn't cut away to a priest and a therapist having a conversation about <laughs> Tandy, because, of course, all subplots must and will be accounted for. We then have Tandy talking to fake Cloak about how happy she is to see him, but, of course, he's like, ha-ha, you ever thought I loved you? Reveal my true form. And, you know, the demon's saying, like, listen, I have always been a demon. You're just too stupid to realize it. And then, of course, in space, in space, <laughs> Cloak is being tortured by the demons who is taking the form of his parents, talking about how he failed them, and then taking the form of his brother, talking about how, because of his actions, his brother turned to drugs, then pushed drugs on their sister who died because the 80s. Mm-hmm. And then Tandy is fighting off the demon in the apartment 
and she unleashes her light powers and then she realizes oh wait a minute my light powers are hurting you you can't possibly be cloak and so she beats up on a demon there's a whole sequence in here about making a mental map yep. a cognitive map I just want to put it out there's a whole sequence in this comic book about making a cognitive map anyway I might use that in AP Psych sometime we then move on to all these figures tormenting Cloak, saying, join us, join us, why don't you come out, why don't you teleport yourself outside that bubble, and join us in the airless space. Tandy is able to dispel the demon with a full-on Nova Blast, which I thought was only something Johnny Storm did, and she then calls them once, says, please, I'm blind, I need help. Cloak realizes that the demons are actually demons and try to trick him so he tempts them inside the bubble and then absorbs them into their, his cloak where they are in a dark dimension and then dos ex new mutants arrive <laughs> yes and they're like hey random lady we don't know we've tried a demon to here i hope that's okay of course it's okay and by the way i'm dagger that, that's exactly where the sequence goes i'm not i'm not simplifying that whatsoever um, so I guess that... they they're aware of Dagger. So like saying that at least sort of I don't know prevents yeah, them from know. needing two more pages of exposition. Yeah, but you guys now have to help me find Cloak, and my powers are drawn to his powers. So if I were to just start firing off light knives, we can follow those to space. <laughs> and they arrive in space only to find the not a Green Lantern bubble empty with just Cloak's dagger inside because Cloak is dead. God damn it, Trey. I think this is a pretty bad comic. It is a pretty bad comic. Yeah. It's rough going. It's it's And it's, it's almost offensive that this is the issue that gets the, the corner title Inferno Finale. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yep. Because apparently... The New Mutants had enough time to have a two, two, two issue crossover <laughs> with Cloak and Dagger in between the time we saw them at the end of Inferno and when they show up in Power Pack. And even though it says, please see issues of Power Pack, number, sorry, please see Cloak and Dagger number four for more explanations. No, we apparently have to go see Cloak and Dagger number five, which I wouldn't be surprised if Cloak and Dagger number five never even freaking came out because this book was canceled. It came out. Okay. Yeah, I think it ran like 16 issues or something. Yeah, this it? one ran a little longer. Um, but it, what's funny is it doesn't have an Inferno corner box, even though it is directly continued from the previous issue. <laughs> Hold on. Hold on. Let me, let me, let me make sure my light is on, turned on here so you can see my face. Uh. Ow! <laughs> Ow! Oh, my God! Like, I have seen Cloak and Dagger in some things. They are great in the Maximum Carnage video game. Um, so but they're... I think of Cloak and Dagger as solid utility players. When you're yeah. having a crossover event and you need two more superpowered characters and maybe someone who can teleport, then you pull in Cloak and Dagger. Um, yeah. Well, to me, they they only really work when they're very low level, dealing with you know drug pushers and runaways and sex trafficking and stuff like that. They don't belong with demons. There was even a moment where, and I don't think it was both of them. I think it was just Cloak. But he joined Punisher's informal Marvel Knights group. And that makes total sense. Like, yeah. I can see that. Yeah. Yeah, I it think was... the only... The, I think my introduction to them was Maximum Carnage. Yeah. 
where just everybody started showing up that was in New York at the time. Cloak and My Dagger. My favorite panel is where, you know, after Tandy has come out and she's like, now I'm ready, she's in her costume, we see the new mutants and they're like, all right, now you're cooking with gas. <laughs> yes. She's still blind. You're taking a blind, blind woman into space. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Like, at least with freaking, I don't know, Daredevil, I understand. People don't know he's blind. But right. But his powers compensate for the, for it, for the most part. Yeah, just, hey, Tandy, fire, oh, God, I was supposed to say fire blindly. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> no. Wow. Oh. All right, good night, folks. Yep. <laughs> I also just have to call out the book on something that I'm sure that Terry Austin just didn't know or care, but... Wasn't it true in at the beginning of this event that the whole reason that they needed the exterminators was because demons could not directly use technology? Yeah. Yeah. And we open with a demon typing on a computer. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Like, I, I know I was just ableist as hell, but this this book is ableist as hell. It was. Uh, uh, I mean, I will give it credit. The scene of her running through the apartment running away from the demon is very good like 80s horror trope like yeah. running through the house to get away but when you see the map because again listeners there is a map in this comic of her apartment it's not a backup little cutaway cut out cutaway thing it's no an entire panel. It, is, it is an entire panel in the story of the comic i'm sorry even if she is blind there is no way she is not able to get from the center of the living room to the door. Yeah. It's yeah. Just... And, and so I, the one thing that the book doesn't do a good job of that I think it, it's implied, it's implicit, but it really needed to be more explicit is that she's only been blind for a very short amount of time. It happened in the first issue of this run. Um, right. And thus she is not used to being blind and thus not used to having to like feel her way around like and, you know, I, I don't know if maybe it's just because I'm looking at it from the, the 2020, 2023 lens, you know, but I don't know. I, I didn't really enjoy seeing Tandy as, I mean, she seems very much like a victim for part of this issue. Oh, I mean, yeah. she's, she's, you know, not dressed completely. She's blind. She's being, you know, you know, led astray by this demon that's attempting to, to lie to her and, and I know towards the end, she kind of shows some strength and stuff, you know, but I don't know. It, it just felt like there were several times I was worried, you know, it was like, where are we varying with this, you know, and they didn't go too far. But I, I still think that it, it didn't show her off to her, her best. No, this is not the best version of Cloak or Dagger. Yeah, no, no. To the point where they are no longer mutants in the main continuity. I'm pretty sure. I, don't quote me on that. I, I, I think that is the case. Just, yeah. again... Yeah, I mean, they're, they're not on... I don't think they're on Krakoa, you know? Like, I, I figure if they were mutants, they'd have, they'd be in the middle of all the, like, post-Hickman X-Men stuff. They are. Yeah, yeah. I really need to read the Krakoa stuff. I really do. The Hickman is stuff is good. So, according, according to Marvel.com, <laughs> they are currently listed as mutates, meaning that their powers were derived from an external mutagenic source. Isn't it like revealed to be an early version of the mutant growth hormone? I think. Oh yes, yeah. I think that did come up once. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That might have been around the time of Young Avengers with Patriot also taking yeah. mutant growth hormone. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. you know Bendis, 
Yeah, so apparently in Cloak and Dagger Volume 4, Dr. Nemesis runs scans on Dagger and reveals that her powers are derived entirely from the drug that she and were given. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Wait, 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 way to go, Norman Osborn. Not even putting real mutants on your X-Men team. <laughs> yeah, apparently in that series, they even, like, while members of that X-Men team, they comment about how they're not actually mutants. Yeah. And, and no one seems to. Yeah, it's, <laughs> like, Cloak and Dagger are a weird spot in, like, a weird Marvel blind spot for me, no pun intended. Yeah, um, like, as, like you, I think, I know them from crossovers. Yep. And I, I know if you if you can read the the Rick Leonardi drawn stuff, it's, I, I it's like good. I like Rick Leonardi. Yeah, he did sometimes over accentuate Tandy's sexuality in that original costume. It was always chilly wherever Tandy was, <laughs> but you know, and, and the fact that she was you know a teenager was kind of weird, but still it, the artwork's beautiful and the stories were good. And I know they had a TV show. They did. I never Which, watched the TV I, show. I've heard it was good. Yeah. It was sort of in its own little corner of Marvel television before Disney Plus started integrating everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't think it's on Disney Plus, though, is it? Let me look. Hold on. It wasn't initially. It might be on Hulu, actually. Oh, because it's a bit... But it was on that... It, it was, was on, on Freeform. The, yeah, Freeform, which was their We Are Vanilla as Hell channel. <laughs> right, right. The, yeah. it, what used to be the Family Channel. Yes. It ran two seasons... It is not on Disney Plus. Hold on, I'm checking Hulu. For any of our listeners who want to go watch it, because we're almost certainly not going to. <laughs> Looks like it is. Yes, it is. I think a lot of the freeform stuff, for whatever reason, ended up on. Yeah. Interesting. But yeah, I don't know. I I was a little let down that this is what Marvel considered to be the Inferno finale. Yeah. That it's not. It doesn't even have an ending. Like it ends on a cliffhanger for a story that's not part of Inferno. No, and hence we will not read it on the podcast, listeners. I'm sorry. Right. If you right. if you want us to put it in a grab bag episode somewhere, let us know. We'll add it to the list. But unless someone specifically asks for it, it's not happening. Yeah, probably not. Because no. yeah. I do not want to read any more of this series. <laughs> but this isn't, despite that that cover text saying finale. This is not for us. The end of our Inferno cover. No, listeners, because of course you have homework. We would like you to make sure that by next class you have read X-Factor number 40, X-Factor Annual number 4, and What If, Volume 2, number 6. Right. Barry, before we go, why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you? Yeah. Well, I'm on BarryReese.net, but that's my blog, and it has a link to all of my activities, all the books that are coming out and things. That's the best place to find me. I'm also on Facebook. I'm on, it used to be Twitter. I guess it's X now. Uh, we still call it there. Twitter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, so I'm out there, you know, and yeah, drop me a line. I definitely like interacting with folks. Uh, cool. And of course, you have a book out right now. Yeah, the Strongman Book One came out last week. Most of my shared universe of New Pulp stuff is set in the 30s and 40s. And the straw man is the beginning of a modern day side to that universe. So I'm a very quick writer, so I'm way ahead of schedule. I've already written four straw man novels and five books of the spinoff series. So yeah, so I'm years ahead of my readers. 
sometimes I people will say, you know, ask me something about the book that just came out, and I'm like, you know, I wrote that like five years ago. I don't remember <laughs> what you're talking about. But but yeah, it's going to be the, that's great the incentive to pick up the first book though, because there's a guarantee that more is coming. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. there's a guaranteed nine more books coming. <laughs> <laughs> It's always kind of fearful, though, because I'm like, wow, what if people hate it? I've got nine more ready to go. <laughs> I, I don't think they will. No. Yeah, early early reviews are positive. Early reviews are positive. <laughs> and of course, the lovely listeners, you should write, go right out and buy that book. I know you're available on Amazon. Are you are you in brick and mortar stores as well? Yeah, yeah, I am. And you, I'm anywhere, Barnes & Noble has it, you know, any place you can, you can buy books, you can find it. Excellent. And of course, love listeners, you can always find us. We're on the socials at Tomb of Ideas, the website formerly known as Twitter. We're at Tomb of Ideas. Blue Sky, which, by the way, Barry, we can provide you with an invite for if you'd like. Sure. Yeah. We are at Tomb of Ideas, especially since I'm pretty sure as of this recording, Twitter might not be around by the time the episode comes out. They're making noises that they're going to charge subscription fees for everyone. Yeah. Which will be my ticket out the door. Yeah. Yeah, well, we, 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 we've got an exit visa if you need one. We, of course, are on Instagram at Tomb of Ideas, uh, Facebook, facebook.com slash Tomb of Ideas. I may have said that one already. And there's also the old-fashioned way, which is Tomb of Ideas at gmail.com, where you can reach out and let us know things and, you know, just we tell love us getting what, feedback. Let us know feedback. what you think of either the books we're covering, the episodes we're doing, questions you have. Read stuff on air if you like. Let us hear from you. Exactly. And, you know, make sure you're, you're, you're going out there and rating us on those the iTunes. Those reviews really help people find the podcast. And, you know, we, we just All like seeing All hail the mighty algorithm. All hail the mighty algorithm. Or whatever, whatever podcatcher you use. Just give us a little love on there. I'm yeah. a Spotify guy. Oh. We're on Spotify. Yeah. We yeah. are. <laughs> I, I, I assume. <laughs> Yeah, even, you are. That's, that's where I listen to you. So, even at the point where I did it, where I like canceled my Spotify subscription for a little bit, I, 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 I knew our podcast was still on Spotify. So, yeah, there you go. And of course, you can find our entire back catalog on cinepunks.com. That's cinepunks with an X. Check out the website. We've got a lot of great stuff there. Our shows there, other shows like the Carnage Report, like the flagship Cinepunks show. Shameless, Cinema Smorgasbord, and much, much more. So check out Cinepunks.com. As we record this, they are gearing up for their annual Cineween celebration. So they'll be having all kinds of of spooky Halloween stuff going on, both in terms of podcast programming and in terms of articles that are being posted. Pretty scary stuff, huh, kids? (laughs) But until next time, Tomb Believers, pencils down. Class dismissed. Class dismissed. (laughs) Bye. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tomb Members, Excelsior! (laughs) 